You are now listening to my dad's podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we're going to cover the modern management of recurrent pregnancy loss. Recurrent miscarriage affects around 1% of couples, in at least 50% of whom no obvious pathology can be identified. There is a lack of consensus regarding the actual number of miscarriages that are required for defining the condition. Now, if the threshold number of miscarriages required for the diagnosis is set too low, many women will have otherwise good prognosis, would be subjected to unnecessary investigations, whereas setting it too high risks risks avoidable pregnancy losses in patients with treatable conditions. This also has implications for research since inclusion of large number of low-risk women with inherently good prognosis would make it difficult to discern any potential benefits of a given intervention. So where are we at with this definition? Well, ACOG considers recurrent pregnancy loss as a loss of two or more pregnancies that are early on in gestation. The UK Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists defines it as a loss of three or more recurrent pregnancies. In addition, the ASRM, which is the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, defines recurrent miscarriage as two or more failed clinical pregnancies similar to that of ACOG. Now, before we get into the specific workup and most likely causes of recurrent pregnancy loss, a quick word about female age and embryonic aneuploidy. Remember that spontaneous miscarriage can occur in 10 to 15% of clinically recognized pregnancies, the major underlying cause being embryonic aneuploidy. Now, since meiotic chromosome segregation errors in oocytes account for the majority of embryonic aneuploidies, and this increases with age, the risk of having a miscarriage is strongly influenced by female age. Consequently, the background risk of having three miscarriages for women less than 25 years is around 0.13%. But it's 100 times more likely, around 13%, if they are over the age of 40. So given the impact of female age on embryonic aneuploidy, the rate-limiting risk factor for miscarriage in older women is largely untreatable. So that's a clinical pearl that tied to recurrent miscarriage risk and recurrence is female age. All right, now remember that around 40% of miscarriages in recurrent miscarriage patients are chromosomably abnormal. This highlights the importance of embryonic aneuploidy in this population. So karyotyping of subsequent miscarriages using whole genome approaches is therefore informative. Significantly, the likelihood of there being a parental cause is heavily influenced by whether embryonic aneuploidy is present. Now, also remember though that just because we're saying that embryonic aneuploidy is a significant cause here of recurrent miscarriage, it doesn't mean that there may be other pathologies in play. For example, there may be uterine causes or other things like the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome which still need to be investigated and we'll get into that in just a little bit. 
All right, now we've just covered the genetic material, genetic makeup of miscarriage. But what about the parental genetic information? Structural chromosomal abnormalities, most commonly balanced translocation at about 85%, which are reciprocal translocations in 60%, and Robertsonian translocations in 40%, can be found in 2 to 5% of recurrent miscarriage couples. Now, this is compared to 0.7% of the general population. So, both ACOG and the Royal College of OBGYN do recommend genetic testing, especially if the fetal genetic tissue of the miscarriage does have an aneuploidy. Now, remember that patients with chromosomal abnormalities should be referred for genetic counseling. All right, when we come back, we'll cover the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome because this is considered the most important treatable cause of recurrent pregnancy loss. Let's get to that next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Antiphospholipid syndrome is found in 5 to 20% of women with recurrent miscarriage and is considered the most important treatable cause. Diagnosis of APS requires two components, adverse pregnancy outcome and lab testing. These labs include antiphospholipid antibodies against lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin antibodies, or anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibodies. Antiphospholipid antibodies are thought to impair pregnancy through various mechanisms, but these can include inhibition of tropoblast function, thrombosis of the uteroplacental vasculature, and initiation of a local inflammatory response at the maternal fetal interface. Diagnosing APS requires moderate to high titers of anticardiolipin antibody or high titers of anti-beta-2 glycoprotein-1 on two separate occasions at least 12 weeks apart. Now remember that the condition requires, in addition to these lab findings, one or more clinical situations, which can include vascular thrombosis, or more than three consecutive miscarriages at less than 10 weeks with other causes of miscarriage excluded, or one or two losses of a normally formed fetus at greater than 10 weeks gestation. Antiphospholipid syndrome, once diagnosed, can be treated with a combination of twice-daily unfractionated heparin starting from a positive pregnancy test all the way until six weeks postpartum and low-dose daily aspirin. Now, low molecular weight heparin has the benefits of once daily administration and a superior safety profile for thrombocytopenia and osteopenia. One randomized study of 60 women found that low molecular weight heparin was not inferior to unfractionated heparin in recurrent miscarriage cases, but larger prospective trials of low molecular weight heparin are still needed. Now remember, right now, the standard is still twice-daily unfractionated heparin, but low molecular weight heparin can be considered if twice-daily dosing becomes an issue. 
All right, we're moving on to uterine structural abnormalities, congenital abnormalities like a septate uterus, bicornuate, unicornuate, a didelphus, or even an arcuate defect, or acquired uterine changes like fibroids, polyps, or adhesions are frequently identified in recurrent miscarriage patients. Now, in one study of over 900 recurrent miscarriage patients, uterine anomalies were identified in about 19% of patients and 6% and 13% being congenital and acquired respectfully. In other words, acquired were more common than the congenital. An assessment of uterine anatomy, therefore, should be considered in these patients. Two-dimensional ultrasound with or without saline infusion usually constitutes the first-line intervention. Others recommend using 3D ultrasound, and then the most invasive is to use a hysterosalpingogram. However, hysterosalpingogram is the photo negative and doesn't provide any image data of the wall itself, unlike 3D or even 2D ultrasound. Uterine septae are the most common congenital abnormality identified in about 5% of recurrent miscarriage women. Now, since the change from abdominal to hysteroscopic surgical procedures, uterine septae have become amenable to low-risk surgical correction. Pooled analysis of 14 studies involving over 1,300 women undergoing hysteroscopic resection found only about 1% rate of perforations and about 0.1% rate of cervical lacerations, so the procedure can be done in a relatively low-risk fashion. Retrospective studies consistently report lower miscarriage rates in patients after metroplasty compared with untreated patients. A large retrospective study found that miscarriage decreased from 41% down to 11% following hysteroscopic septal resection. And in another study involving over 300 patients, the miscarriage rate decreased from 94% down to 16% and the live birth rate also increased from about 3% to 75%. However, notably is that there are no published randomized controlled trials evaluating septal resection and pregnancy outcome. So that's important to note. All right, well, that's uterine septum. What about fibroids that are much more common? Well, an earlier systematic review found an association between fibroids and higher miscarriage rate, but robust prospective evidence that myomectomy actually reduces miscarriages is lacking. Now, it's widely acknowledged that the magnitude of effect of fibroids on pregnancy is greatest for submucous, least for subserosis, and intermediate for intramural fibroids. A recent systematic review identified only one RCT involving hysteroscopic resection of submucous fibroids among 30 women. Miscarriage rates were 38% in the myomectomy group versus 50% in the expected management group. But the numbers, of course, were too small to draw any real conclusions. One paper investigated the impact of submucous fibroids, specifically in the context of recurrent miscarriage, among 966 recurrent miscarriage patients. The incidence of all fibroid types was 8%. 
similar to values found in another series of recurrent miscarriage patients. Now, following hysteroscopic fibroid resection, in the 25 of 79 cases with cavity distortion, mid-trimester loss did decrease from 21% to 0%, while the live birth rate more than doubled from 23% up to 52%. However, in the absence of a matched no-treatment group with submucosis fibroids, the given good pregnancy prospects without intervention, even after three miscarriages, it is not known whether surgery was responsible for the improved outcome. There is also a lack of evidence regarding management of intracavitary polyps and intrauterine adhesions in these patients with recurrent miscarriage. However, since many clinicians elect to remove cavity-distorting lesions on the basis that they could possibly impair implantation, this is a difficult area in which to conduct any real randomized clinical trials. So, until better quality evidence emerges, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine does propose that it is reasonable to undertake surgical correction in cases of uterine cavity defects associated with fibroids, polyps, and even intracavitary adhesions. Alright guys, we're down to the last three topics dealing with recurrent miscarriage. The first has to do with thrombophilia testing. Is there a role for checking for thrombophilia in these patients? The answer may surprise you. And the second has to do with progesterone supplementation. Does that make a difference? And lastly, we need to talk about the potential role, if any, of immunological factors in the causation of recurrent miscarriage. But we're going to leave these three topics for part two. Yeah, again, that's another cliffhanger. So you're going to have to come back and listen to part two of modern management of recurrent miscarriage. Thanks for listening to part one, and we'll see you soon for part two. Mm-hmm.